All right, good morning, everybody. My name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and you know it's going to be a good Sunday when you open up the scripture reading from Leviticus, you know, that's uh, going to be nice and gritty. Uh, speaking of nice and gritty, my wife and I have a son who's about 20 months, so we like taking him to our community pool from time to time, which is a lot of fun, uh, mostly because you don't have to clean it or anything like that, so it's just kind of nice. But we take him there, and he, he jumps around, and he's got those little swim diapers on. You know, we're not like those parents who potty trained at 18 months, didn't pull that off, didn't try, but also didn't pull it off. But he's got those swim diapers, right? And you think, you know, you, I like buying products and believing that you can trust them, but he's got a swim diaper thing. And But we were there this, this other, last week, and there's this other family there and they had like a toddler and a bunch of other kids that were all unruly and misbehaved. Like from the like, you know, like when you walk up and you're like, man, I wish those parents would parent. You know, that's the, you know, and just kind of chaos on that side of the pool. You know, and you're going like, oh my gosh, you know, those poor kids are gonna have to grow up and be citizens one day. You know, and just it was just a mess over there. And then then like they eventually kind of packed up quickly and left, which was kind of interesting. You know, they never really acknowledged us. Um, but then quickly after they left. Um, I saw this, you know, toddler-sized floater poop in the water. <laughs> and Taylor and I looked at each other like, can you believe those people? Can you believe that they would just, you know, leave behind the most important thing to not leave behind, you know? And so then, then we looked down and actually our son's pooped his diaper and his poop's coming out of his diaper. And <laughs> it was our, our fault, you know, so see. But we felt a lot better than them for about seven seconds. <laughs> we knew that they were bad parents, we were good parents. And it was not our fault that the community pool was a disaster. Uh, so anyway, swim diapers, if you need a business idea, ones that work would be a great idea. So you can do that. But that kind of illustration is a lot about how I feel about this you know, gender talk, is it feels like um, someone's messing up our, our clean environment. And as a church, it's really easy to look out the window and blame those people. But a lot of the reason why our environment's not very habitable has to do with our own failures, has to do with our own uh, poor job at processing gender, gender roles, how those things play out, how they manifest, uh, having a higher view of men than women in some cases, having uh, you know, reinforcing non-biblical stereotypes on a regular basis that make people feel kind of not included or... Uh, not like they're a part of what's going on. Uh, and I think that this text in Leviticus, which on the one hand has nothing to do with gender and another thing has everything to do with our approach to these kind of contentious topics, I just kind of want to wade into this with you. So verse, Leviticus 18, verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. That's where we've been, how we've been going. This could be like analogous to... Uh, in our current cultural moment, like the traditionalists, like this is how it's been, this is where we've been, this is how, how we've always done it. That we as Christians in America can look back at some idealized state in our nation and say like, that was when we had good gender roles figured out. That was when we were good at gender. And part of what uh, God is saying here to his people is don't be preoccupied with what it was like back then. Don't be concerned about just being traditionalists or don't be concerned with how things have been. But then he also looks at him and says, nor do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. Don't be overly preoccupied with what's going on in Canaan, the progressives, where you're going to be. 
And a lot of us as Christians in the room are probably preoccupied with one of those two things. We're either kind of back in my day type people who want to believe in some type of idealized gender situation that was happening something like 40, 60 years ago, or we're nervous and anxious about being on the wrong side of history. And so we either end up kind of wanting to be like the Egyptians in terms of being traditionalists or wanting to be like the Canaanites in terms of being progressives. But here's what God is saying to us as Redemption Gateway and as a church is don't be concerned about where you've been or where you're going. Be concerned about what I say. That this gender conversation is not to be had in the context of debating traditionalists versus progressives. That's not fruitful. And that's unfortunately where this discussion descends into all the time. And the whole time you end up missing tons of people. What God says is, instead, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. Some of you in the room, I know, some of you watching online, I know are inclined, like you're kind of the, your heart breaks for people who don't fit the typical thing in society. And so you're inclined towards kind of being more of a progressive some of you kind of look at the news and even maybe look at your children or look at uh, your neighbors and you're like bent towards lamenting the direction of things and so you're inclined towards being a traditionalist. And I, I just want all of us to know that having your heart break for people is a good thing, whether it's on the conservative side or the progressive side or traditionalist side, the progressive side. But that's not going to lead this conversation. Is who's excluded, who's included. What's going to lead this conversation is what has God said and how do we live in light of that and how do we wrestle with that. When I say that, that kind of going back to the community pool and my family being responsible for the crap in the water, you know, there's, I, I'm coming to this conversation pretty mindful of my own like failures. Like I had a really close friend, um, who was in my small group in high school, freshman year, sophomore year, junior, senior year. And he had really bad parent situation, mostly a really bad dad. Um, his parents got divorced. You know, it was his mom's leading. She was 100% justified. He didn't stay at home with his dad for good reasons. And then we're freshmen in college and we're hanging out, playing Halo or whatever you do when you don't have responsibility in the world. And we were in between games, you know, and he kind of says, like, hey, I need to tell you something. And he just goes, I, I've been taking, this is a, a dude, a guy, he goes, I've been taking estrogen pills that I bought online. And I just kind of like in that moment, you're just going like, well, this is uncomfortable and I want this moment to end. And so I don't know what I said, but it was something about like, well, is it helping? No, we'll stop it. Can we keep playing our video games, right? And we, he like made several other attempts to talk to me, you know, when I was 18 about like his wrestling with not feeling, feeling comfortable in his body and me knowing like his family history and his difficulty and this kind of, and I knew that he was like kind of at home with the lights off, grasping in the dark for solid footing, looking for a place to like be known and seen and understood and not feeling comfortable in his body, mostly because his whole life his dad had made him uncomfortable in his body. And, you know, sitting there and especially like preparing for this lesson and realizing that my kind of inability to enter in and be compassionate, you know, he 
started to drift. He hasn't been to church in like 10 years. I don't know the extent of his ongoing struggle because he cut me off for, I would have cut me off if I was him based on how I was being non-compassionate and it makes me think about um, how I wish I was to my friend who was suffering. This is Mark 6, 34. Jesus went to the shore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without shepherds. Our current cultural moment is this mix of a reality of a lot of people who are either far from God or are in this uncomfortable position with the Lord, trying to grasp at the dark for a sense of identity and security, trying to find something that's going to give them stable footing. And the way that Jesus leads is by being physically moved. Compassion means like turmoil in his gut at these people who are like sheep without shepherds. And one of the ways that I think that I've failed to enter into this, and I think many of us in this room probably have, is rather than leading with compassion for people who are obviously suffering and grasping and trying to find solid footing, we lead with this hostility, this anger, this red versus blue, left versus right type thing. And I just want us as Redemption Gateway, so one of the questions that I get when we teach our new members classes or our rude classes, this question comes up almost every time. Someone will raise their hand and they'll say, I have a question. So if you're not a member yet, um, please become one, take a rude class, et cetera, et cetera. If you are a member, uh, you might have had this moment where someone asked a question where they're like, how do you treat, how do you guys, how do you all, how does this church treat LGBTQ people? And in the rooted class, what I say is, well, you are becoming part of us, so how you treat LGBTQ people is how we treat LGBTQ people. Right? And so recognizing that the way that we interact with people on the basis of compassion, incarnation, connection, curiosity, acknowledging the suffering of various people, like, I just wanted to preface what we're going on here with these two realities. One, we're not to be preoccupied with what Egypt and Canaan are doing. We're to be preoccupied with what the Lord is saying and submitting to it. Secondly, the means by which we enter into these conversations is with the compassion of Christ. And I hope everyone in this room, people watching online, myself included, that we feel this responsibility that for most of the people in our lives, how we treat them is their maybe the only experience of how God's people treats them. Do you feel that responsibility? Because as followers of Jesus, we know our proclivity and our tendencies to sin. We disappoint ourselves all the time. We suffer. We try to make sense of suffering. We mismanage our suffering. Our suffering leads us into sin. And we, we know that as Christians, and we still know Jesus, and we still know that his kindness leads us to repentance, and we know that he's gracious and that he's God and he's authoritative. Now imagine trying to make sense of your suffering and your sin apart from Jesus. This is one of the reasons why people grasp in the dark and feel around. And one of the ways I think that we as a church, like I said, like we, I think our church leans substantially more conservative. And kind of as we go on through this, this, uh, uh, this sermon, we're, like the, the position that we believe the Bible teaches is going to be what most people just understand as being very conservative. Right? And unfortunately, people tend to misunderstand compassion as being liberal or something like that in terms of sexual ethics. And I think 
I want us to be less concerned about liberal, conservative, left, right, red, blue, and more concerned with are we just being God's people faithfully or not? Is your heart marked by compassion when you consider people who are wrestling with their gender identity, uh, type of male trapped in a female's body, et cetera, on and on? Or is your heart marked by something else? Because your heart's marked by something else, let's begin the repentance process. Okay. Now what that doesn't mean is that we don't speak with clarity and tell the truth to people. I do think that compassion includes clarity and truth speaking. We don't want to patronize people and not tell them the truth. Right? At some point you tell your your offspring that, you know, you bought them their Christmas presents, right? Even though when you have to break that glass, it's like a problem, right? You because at some point you don't want to keep treating them like children. So like compassion and love ends up moving towards honesty. And that's what we're going to talk about here uh, a good chunk this morning. But I just kind of want to do a bit of a temperature check in the room and think through the ways that we as a church or even like maybe in your assumptions, maybe have a bad view of gender, maybe even like a, an Egyptian view or a traditionalist view of gender. So I was watching TV the other day and there's a male who was uh, in the show that I was watching who was wearing a dress, had long hair that was braided had on makeup and blue in their hair. Here's a picture of him. Oh. <laughs> William Wallace, Braveheart, right? So I show this to mostly go, okay, so a good amount of the way that we live out our maleness and our femaleness is culturally conditioned, right? You would never describe this... Um, obvious male as being feminine. However, so I just want to acknowledge that like clothing, hairstyles, a lot of these things are culturally conditioned and uh, that's okay, right? The way that people live out their maleness and femaleness are going to be different culture to culture. That does not erase maleness and femaleness, but it does mean they live them out differently. Um, but even the Bible, the way the Bible talks about gender. If I asked you, you know, is the Bible traditionalist or progressive on gender? Well, like, think with me. Okay, I'm going to do this like a thought experiment. So here's a person in the Bible who they uh, stay home when the men go out to war and they write poetry and play music and are sensitive and emotional. That's King David, right? The, uh, the man after God's own heart. Okay, so have another person, you can think about it like this. Uh, here's a person who has a strong back, strong arms, provides for their household, buys and sells land, does business, deals at the city gate. Well, that's the Proverbs 31 woman, right? the ideal woman. Um, there's a variety of these things. And so what, part of what we want to see is that the Bible doesn't cleanly fit into this left versus right deal. And these kind of traditionalist gender roles are undermined by even a bunch of what scripture has to say. And so I'm going to be reading from time to time excerpts from our Redemption Church membership packet, which if you're a member, you should be familiar with. And if you're not, tisk tisk, you know, um, it's online. You can read it whenever you want to. But I want to read this section of it. We added a statement on um, gender identity in the body. And this is from that. King David was a real man when he wrote poetry and played the harp. Deborah was a real woman when she led Israel to war. Jesus wept over Jerusalem like a mother hen. The woman of Proverbs 31 buys property, runs a business, has a strong back, and provides for her family. How are we doing? Is the Bible traditionalist or progressive? 
and in what sense and in how far. And so what I want us to be able to acknowledge on the front end is, so what we're going to talk about is being sex, meaning male, female, uh, which biologically speaking, humans are sexually dimorphic, which is the technical term for the, they have to have sex to reproduce, right? So there's different types of parts that work together to form children, as opposed to other animals that like just reproduce through like mitosis or something like that. Um, humans are sexually dimorphic. And so we're going to talk about this maleness and this femaleness. Even in the Old Testament, Genesis 1 talks about male and female. Those words could be translated pierced and piercee, like getting to literally the way that the human bodies fit together in order to reproduce. And so we're talking about sex, and that's what I'm talking about, is the biological XX, XY reality. Gender tends to be describing how that, that sexuality, how those identities as sex people, male or female, play out in society. And what we're going to argue here is that part of what we need to do is back up and first go, before we start talking about maleness, femaleness, and gender, we need to talk about what does it mean to be a human and have a body. And so I want to talk about our bodies. You know, you all have a body. If I was going to say, you know, where's Tony? Tony's right here. Right? Tony's in the front. What am I pointing at? His soul? No, I'm pointing at his body. There he is. He's right there. You are your body. Do you think that's true? You, you are your body. You don't just, you're not a soul that has a body. You're not just a body that has a soul, but you are a body and soul a unit, a whole. That when God creates people in Genesis chapter 1, he makes them out of the dust of the earth, out of elements that are bound together by chemistry. It's concrete. The idea of being made in God's image is that you're a physical, located, representative of something unseen. That's what an image is. You have images on your cell phone. They are physical, located representations of things that would otherwise be unseen. That you are made in God's image. That every person you ever lock eyes with, every person you ever sit across the table with, every person you work with or sleep with or uh, honk at in traffic, God's image. Holy, full of dignity, worth, value. If you're like most people who are raised in America, you think, duh, all people have dignity, worth, and value. However, for most of world history in most places, that would not be duh. That would be, what are you talking about? It wasn't until the doctrine of the image of God was popularized by the expanse of Christianity across the West and across the world that people began to assume that individuals had dignity and value as individuals. And that you, your dignity and your value as an image bearer of God is located in your body as it is right now. Graying, thinning, sagging, Plumping, swelling, unswelling, filling, emptying, that body. Not some other body, the one you have right now. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit, full of dignity, full of value. This is so radically countercultural in the first century that we have a hard time even grasping it. That the most common heresy, meaning like false doctrine, that ended up infiltrating the church in the first century was the doctrine of Gnosticism or Docetism. Docetism comes from the Greek word dikeo, which means appearance. The people believed with such depth and weight that the human body was so unholy and gross with all its waste and its excess and its frailty and its fallenness that God could not take on a body. How could a perfect God inhabit an imperfect body? sack of flesh. 
But contrary to Greek thought, contrary to the way Plato talked about how our bodies are tombs, our bodies are prisons, and the real thing is your soul. Contrary to that, you have a God who speaks and breathes life into flesh and bone. And God spends a tremendous amount of time even talking to people about how to care for and respect their bodies. Christianity is a remarkably pro-body religion, contrary to its reputation. You might hear in the news, Christians are prude, Christians are anti-body, Christians are this, Christians are that. And I'm saying some Christians might be that, but the Bible is not. God cares about your body. So much that he took on a body, lived in his body, experienced life in the body, went through puberty in the body, was murdered in his body, buried in his body, risen in his body, is coming again to judge the earth in his body. Jesus has a body with skin and bone just like yours with a heart beating. Lungs breathing. Part of what happens in our current cultural moment is in order to move into this belief that our minds supersede our bodies in terms of identity, we first have to believe that our bodies aren't that valuable. But part of the Christian testimony is that our bodies tell us the truth about who we are. Our minds, our psychologies, they're temperamental, they're unpredictable, they're highs and they're lows, we misinterpret them. And so I just want to be very clear at the front end that if you really want to know what your gender is, you do not look into your heart, you look in between your legs. Your body tells you the truth about who you are. This is both how I know whether I'm male or female, and it's how I know whether I'm Tony or Seth. If I tell you I'm Tony Kerber, you wouldn't interview me, you would look at me, You'd trace my history, what my body's done, what my body's not done, where my body came from. This is how we differentiate between people. This is how we differentiate ourselves, is that our bodies tell us the truth. This is clear kind of biblical understanding of what it means to be human, of what it means to have a body. But again, I just want to say, Christians are, have the most pro-body worldview of any of the dominant major world religions and of any of the secular atheists who kind of believe that all we're doing is spinning in a ball of chaos until the next phase of chaos. Do you hold your body in that high regard? Do you take care of it? Do you consider it? Do you give it what it needs? Do you respect other people's bodies like that? That your spouse, your kids, image of God, temple of the Holy One? Before we even start talking about male, female, gender stuff, we've got to have a high view of bodies if we want to have a biblical view of male and female. The Redemption Church, the Redemption Church membership packet says it like this. Our bodies are sacred. We're not just persons who have bodies. We are bodies. Body and soul share an integral union, mutually integral to our personhood. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. Christ's incarnation and resurrection affirm the body's foundational significance. Amen. But we're not just bodies, we're also binary bodies. If you read the text of Matthew 19, if you want to turn there with me, you can. I just want to follow Jesus' method. When we talk about uh, how do we approach controversial topics, how do we approach weighty issues, I want to say, like, first of all, we kind of have to do the don't be concerned about Egypt, don't be concerned about Canaan, be concerned about what God says. Then what I want to do is look at Jesus. What is God saying in the flesh? The fullest revelation 
of God. What we end up happening here is people come to Jesus and approach him with an ethical question. Should people do this or should people do this? And Jesus' method, I think, is significant for us as we think about this stuff. So they come to him, ask him a question, and Jesus answers, Have you not read, this is Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus, God in the flesh, goes to Genesis 1 and footnotes God's word. If you want to follow Jesus, we follow Jesus' approach to complicated moral issues, and that primarily begins by going back to the beginning. What did God say in the beginning? God makes them male and female. Are you comfortable following Jesus to Genesis? Because I know a lot of Christians who love Jesus, we start talking about Genesis and they get squeamy. Ah. But Jesus goes straight to Genesis, doesn't skip a beat. God made them male and female. Male and female, pierced one, pierced C, coming together, the two becoming one. This is the nature of this. Not only that, but this is the structure of the whole of creation, that there's light and dark. If you read Genesis 1, there's light and dark, land and sea, heaven and earth, male and... It says, but man was alone. He was lacking his corresponding other. So what happens is God makes a helper who is fit. And helper um, does not mean like sub- subjugated to, because oftentimes the Holy Spirit's called the helper of us, and we're not. he's not... Holy Spirit's certainly not subjugated to us, but comes along and says, I'm going to make the helper fit for him, corresponding to, or across from, or in binary to, that the structure of creation is binary, all the way down to how magnets and batteries work, all the way down to the fabric of the basics of things, protons, neutrons, electrons, male, female, binary. When you wipe away the male-female distinction, what you're doing is you're wiping away the entire poetic structure of the creation that God designed. That was designed to be these two coming apart and coming back together. Some who are on the more progressive side who want to be Christians will say things like, well, obviously there's a spectrum in between. There's absolute darkness, absolute light, and this kind of flowing of in-between things. Therefore, gender can exist on this kind of flowing together spectrum. And I want to say, hold on, the whole point of Genesis 1 is not that there's a spectrum, but the, the whole point of Genesis 1 is that when the two come together, male and female, that's procreation. That's, that's literally high point or climax of creation. That just like light and dark come together and it's sunset, sunrise, and land and sea come together and it's the beach and heaven and earth come together and it's the mountains, male and female come together and it's children. That the procreative dimension of the male and female coming together in the sex act is a highlight of creation. That the two that are different coming together is meant to be beautiful. This is not varieties of men and women coming together along a spectrum. This is one man and one woman coming together and creating something beautiful. Our bodies are binary. That's the structure. Uh, Here's what it says in the membership packet. The body's sex nature as male or female is not only significant, but bound up with our creation in the image of God. Jesus reaffirms the diversity of the sexes as ethnically significant and grounded in the structure of creation. If we want to follow Jesus, Jesus takes us to Genesis. That's how we do these types of things. All right? I want to kind of pause there and stand back, because right now so far we've talked about Cultures, gender, the way that gender might be different culture to culture or place to place. We've also talked about um, creation, but if you are familiar with the Bible story, Genesis 3 is the fall, and stuff gets dicey, stuff gets hard, suffering starts happening, that things begin to disintegrate. 
Likewise, what ends up happening is uh, many of us have friends, loved ones who, who suffer with a variety of developmental disorders, birth defects, that our biologies don't always do what they were designed to do. Our psychologies certainly don't do always what they were designed to do. So it's one thing to uphold the norms, but the question of what happens to the norms after the fall, after sin and brokenness and decay go washing through, and now all of a sudden the cells that were supposed to divide perfectly don't divide perfectly anymore. When the bodies start to ache, the psychologies experience dysphoria and tension and difficulty. What do we do with that? Well, Jesus shows us here in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 11, it says, But he said to them, Not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. Verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Now, eunuch from birth in the first century would be understood as someone who didn't develop in the womb properly sexually. Maybe they're born and they're sterile. Maybe they're born and it's ambiguous. Maybe they're born and there's just something not exactly right. Some scientists will say that um, as much as as many as 1.7% of the human population has a form of intersex condition that they're born with. I think a more accurate reading of the the research says it's like about 0.018, which means that in this room, there's a, a room this size, about two people would be born with some type of truly ambiguous intersex condition. And for those people, and really those people only, sex is something that is sort of constructed or assigned at birth. For everybody else, sex is something that's recognized at birth. So the sex assigned at birth language is a huge problem in that it doesn't represent 99.9% of realities. But I just want you to know that if you're those one or two people in here, Jesus, before we were even talking about this in our culture, acknowledges and recognizes that there are some who from birth are eunuchs. There are some who from birth, things don't work exactly right. Now, we know that there's a variety of birth defects, sometimes born without certain limbs, sometimes born with extra fingers, sometimes born with various developmental conditions. All of that is suffering and it's real. And we just have to be able to acknowledge that, that Jesus is able to acknowledge that reality and simultaneously uphold the male-female norm. It's not that the exceptions erase the rule, but that the exceptions are considered in addition to the norm. One of the problems we have in our culture moment right now is that people are citing exceptions as a, as a way to erase all gender norms. That's not the way of Jesus. Jesus says they have been male and female, and some are born eunuchs. Likewise, it goes on to say that there are many eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, likely through some type of injustice or um, some type of like slavery position where people um, don't want to be um, like don't want to trust the person to not sleep with their wife, or et cetera, et cetera. And there's other people who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, meaning that maybe like their sexual desires are out of, out of line with God's blessed plan for the exercise of sexuality, and so they decide to act as eunuchs, even though they're not actually eunuchs. But we as Christians need to recognize that there are real people with both physical intersex conditions that facilitate a high degree of suffering and shame and silence and quietness. And there are people who have real psychological conditions like gender dysphoria where they just feel chronically uncomfortable in their own bodies. That's what my friend was 
wrestling with who I fumbled real bad and added hurt on top of hurt, gender dysphoria. That's when you, that this is the, I, I feel like I am a woman even though biologically I'm a male. Like that suffering is real. And we need to be a people who have compassion for it. And we need to recognize the difficulty that other people carry that we may not have to carry. Just because I have never, for a second, had a sense of gender dysphoria, doesn't mean I can therefore just say it doesn't exist. Now, acknowledging those suffering realities does not just give people license to go about doing what they want. Like part of love, and I just want to be very careful here, part of love is when you talk to someone who is suffering with a mental illness, you don't call their mental illness good. Right? I've, like I, I have connections and I've spoken with and I've talked to people who hear voices, schizophrenics, and I don't tell them those voices are real, act on them. But I want to have compassion and patience and walk with them and try to help them live into reality. And that's part of what we're called to do with, especially folks with psychological conditions like gender dysphoria, like loving them as they process through how to live into reality. So if, if you struggle with gender dysphoria and you're in this room, don't let a culture that says, yeah, male, female vary across cultures, therefore do whatever you want. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. We're not trying to erase norms. We're trying to uphold the norms and acknowledge the suffering from those people who don't fit those norms exactly. And especially those of you who really lean on the gender traditionalist side, just know this, that the comments you make about suffering people might be heard by the suffering people. And they will never come back to you. And if we want to be like Christ to people who are suffering, that's a process of entering into suffering, not throwing rocks at it from a distance. Now I know it's tempting to hear all this stuff in terms of left-right, but trying to go there. Here's what the Redemption Membership Packet says about this. Jesus also recognizes the exception of those born eunuchs, which is analogous, if not equivalent, to intersex conditions, while simultaneously affirming the male-female binary as normative for creation. Followers of Jesus ought to identify in accordance with our bodily sex, not present ourselves in ways that will intentionally introduce confusion as to our identity as male or female, and not seek to alter our body's sex through hormone therapy or sex reassignment surgery. There is great flexibility in how one expresses their gender so long as it's not deliberately seeking to identify or present themselves in opposition to their bodily sex. Just as Christians are against lying with their words, we're also against lying with our clothes and our bodies. It's not loving and it's not kind to intentionally confuse or deceive the people that we're around. So part of being a follower of Jesus is telling the truth with the way that we present ourselves. So the question we have to ask is, what's the path forward? What do we do about this now? If Canaan is going off this direction and Egypt's going off that direction, we're trying to hear the word of the Lord and go straight. I think the question for us Redemption Gateway is this, is how patient will we be with struggling and suffering people? Because there's a lot of lost people around us who have made substantial choices and done substantial things to their bodies, to their minds, as they've tried to grasp in the dark at a sense of stability and identity. Right? There has always been a huge percentage of the human population that feels terrible, depressed, anxious, like they don't fit in, 
like their other, that their whole life has been marked by this kind of dysphoric, dissonant situation. And a generation comes, a generation goes, and people sell solutions that end up over-promising and under-delivering, and people get trapped in this. When people walk in here who are struggling with their gender identity, we should see them and recognize that they have been oppressed. Sometimes it's self-inflicted, sometimes it's otherwise inflected, but there's this reality that these are people full of dignity made in the image of God who are trying to find a sense of self and have maybe or likely yet to find it or are still in the process of finding a true security that's rooted in Jesus. And so patience needs to be the norm. This is the text of Romans where Paul tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I do think that clarity and honesty is part of that kindness. But part of the problem is going back to me blowing it with my friend in that conversation, just this reality that I'm going, this is making me uncomfortable, so I need you to hurry up and not be struggling with this anymore. That's failure to love on my part. I know that for a lot of you in this room, and especially those of you watching online, you're maybe one or two degrees removed from someone who is substantially spiraling or confused or suffering regarding their gender identity and really not believing their goodness of their body. They're really believing that their psychology needs to trump their biology. Who are looking inward at their heart, searching for labels and, and adjectives and nouns and verbs to make sense of who they are because society has told them to feel the pressure to self-define and self-direct and self-determine. And that is terrible to have to do that for yourself. Whereas God defines, God directs, God determines. And the faster we can be at recognizing that and submitting to it and being led by it, the actually the faster we'll be walking in the way of flourishing. So the question for us at Redemption Gateway is not what has God said, because that feels pretty clear to me. Male and female, there are norms. Because of sin, there are people who are suffering in these objections. The question is, can we live in that relational tension and be with people and be kind to people and be compassionate with people who we may have substantial disagreements on regarding issues of gender and sexuality? Do we have the pain tolerance to stay there? Because most of the time, we don't have the pain tolerance, so we withdraw and we blame it on their worldview. Whereas the way of Christ is leaning in and staying in the tension and being close. Jesus risked it all and was rejected. And the question is, will we continue to wait to be the ones who are rejected or will we be the ones who proactively reject in order to maintain our status quo stuff? I hope that all of us in this room can go, my body's a gift. It's not a curse. It's not a prison. And even though it's marred and stained by sin, it still is image of God. Image of God. I don't need to look internally somewhere to find out stuff about myself that God has already spoken in creation and made me who I am. So I just want to reread this Leviticus text because I do think I really want us to just be a people who are less concerned with what's going on in traditionalist Egypt and what's going on in progressivist Canaan. And I just want us to be people who say, I want to follow the Lord's statutes. And I want to have compassion on those who won't or can't. 
speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. Don't be preoccupied with what's going on in Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. Don't be preoccupied with what's going on in Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Lord, we do want you to be our Lord. There are so many other voices, so many other shaping forces that are trying to tell us who we are, but we want to live into the reality that we know that you, we are who you say we are, that you are right and others are wrong. God, you allow a tremendous amount of suffering, both physical and psychological, and we don't always understand, we rarely do understand why you allow those things, but we do know that in the midst of that suffering, we know that you have a body, Lord Jesus, and that you also suffer in that body, and so you understand our suffering. That the psychological pain, um, the physical pain, you get it, and so we can identify with you. God, I praise that Weezer Redemption Gateway would be people who, in real compassion, stay close to people who strongly disagree with us, that we continue to love them, but at the same time, with absolute conviction, are able to say what God has said, able to say what you have said. God, give our conscience freedom. Give us courage. Help us walk uh, in, the, in, a, in a bold, loving way, recognizing that we don't have it all figured out, but your word is spoken clearly. God, lead us, bind our conscience, and give us wisdom as we interact with people who are far from you. In your son's name we pray, amen.